This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He says, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. Do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. I'm Anthony, and I am in the studio with Sky here. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I think it's your turn to go first. Okay. Well, I am starting with a fella named Fred Gruber, and this is an adult-themed inmate here. He is in for murder in the first degree, so just, just a heads up. Fred was born in the island city of Galveston on the Gulf Coast of Texas in September of 1889 to German immigrant parents. Uh, they had fled Germany around 1889. He had a couple older siblings, but uh, they were born in Germany. He's the first born in the United States. Okay. And uh, his father, Emil, was a fisherman, and the family owned this little small frame building with two rooms, and the larger served basically as the sleeping quarters for the whole family, and, and the smaller one was their kitchen and, and okay. restroom cleanup area. Kitchen um, and restroom together. Well, you know, I did not have blueprints to this house. <laughs> it just sounded like a little shack that they had converted, so it, it okay. may not have had plumbing. So they would probably have more of an, an outhouse sort of situation. Something along those lines. But okay. I probably some form of area to clean yourself up. Is, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I would just hope it was not in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, there's, I was a little confused because uh, some things that Fred said made it seem like he was an older sibling. And documents made it seem like he was one of the younger, the second oh, youngest okay. sibling of four. Um, so... I'm still a little bit unclear uh, about it, but I'm pretty certain that he was the third youngest. His father was an angry, belligerent man, and especially when he was he was drunk. Uh, he'd be described as ill-tempered and went under the influence of intoxicants. He was violent and desperate. He had ill-treated his wife and family for some time past, and it is said he had threatened her life with a pistol on several occasions, her, of course, being his mother. Um, uh, Fred's mother, not, not Fred's, his own mother. Yes, Fred's mother. <laughs> okay. This all came to a head on the early morning of August 2nd, 1896. Uh, seven-year-old Fred witnesses his father, Emil is his name, snap, and Emil pulls out a forty-four caliber revolver and shoots Fred's mother, 33-year-old Carolyn Gruber. The bullet struck her in the back of the left oh, ear, no. and as she fled, Emil shot her again through the lower part of the body. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so these, these children witness this happen. So she collapses um, between the two rooms, and then Emil turns the revolver on no. himself oh, no. and kills himself oh, in front geez. of his children. Oh. And so immediately he orphans these children. So um, the mother did die. So yes. she Okay, yeah. so he shoots her in the back of the head. Like So it 
up behind her ear, yes. right? Mm-hmm. But she still is alive at that point because she tries to run. Uh, that's that's what the detectives uh, seem to think, that she okay. was attempting to flee the room, and that's when he shot her in the oh, back. Yeah. So, I mean, horrible thing for these children oh, to witness yeah. and, you know, shook their lives forever. And mm-hmm. I think this comes back throughout Fred's life for the rest of his life. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, it would. It absolutely would. Yeah, Maybe. yeah. So can't even imagine. And Texas, like the folks in Texas were like, this is unbelievable. The Daily Herald in Brownsville, Texas, posted a story on August 6th titled Fiendish Crimes, in which they depict the ghastly crimes that occurred that summer, including this one with Emil Gruber. And they say, uh, on the heels of the two cases above referred to comes the news from Galveston of an awful murder committed by a man who was insanely jealous of his wife. Be it said, however, as a grim sort of credit to him, Gruber, that Galveston man, had the decency to kill himself after he had killed his wife. So how harsh is that? Oof. Newspapers are the worst, yes. for the record. Yeah. Early newspapers are horrendous. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, for so many different reasons. Um, it was just a different time period. Yeah. You know? um, the next place I'm certain is when I find Fred living in the Haskell M- Memorial Home in Battle Creek, Michigan, and it's basically an orphanage. Mm. Uh, he had lived with his family for a short time, but uh, I actually get the most about his life from a 1918 letter that he writes to the parole board asking to be oh, commuted. Wow. He moved to a ranch owned by distant relatives where he was placed to work. And after two years of hard work, he decided to run away and join the Parker Carnival Company, which was a traveling circus. And uh, he became the circus electrician, which is kind of interesting. We'll kind of get into that in a second. While he's at the circus, he meets this carpenter named John Billings, who will be an important player later on. And this this 45-year-old man, John Billings, actually gives Fred his first taste of liquor at a, at a young, young age. So as just a teenager. But the Parker Carnival Company traveled all around the United States. And I was going through the Library of Congress trying to see where all where it stopped between 1905 and 1910, kind of when he was, he was uh-huh. working at it. And I had to stop at a point. But he, they visited Vermont, Kansas, New Jersey, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Maryland, Ohio, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Nebraska, New Mexico, Iowa. And it just kept going. I just like, okay, wow. I need to stop. Yeah. But uh, most of the, the newspaper ads said that it was one of the biggest and best carnivals in the world. And they would fill the streets in these towns with uh, these huge tents full of attractions. And the company even had their own train that was 32 cars long wow. called the Yellow Flyer. And they uh, it carried materials, people, all kinds of equipment. The tents were adorned with these wooden fronts painted and decorated and studded with these incandescent lights, mm. which is where Fred comes along. Oh, right. They had over 3,000 incandescent lights, and Whoa. it was basically Fred's job to, to wire all those up to oh. this this generator that they actually pulled on this train car to power all of these lights. Wow. It was a, it was a huge thing to be involved in. Yeah. Fred is, you know, traveling the whole country, doing all these shows. Mm-hmm. Finally, in the early fall of 1908, they land in Wallace, Idaho, up in northern Yay, Idaho. Wallace. Yeah, it's the <laughs> county seat of Shoshone County in the silver mining district of the Idaho There's a Panhandle. Lot of S's in that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shoshone's founded in 1884 on the South Fork of the Coeur d'Alene, and it's actually the silver mining producer of the world. Like they had the most silver pulled out of the ground in Wallace and wow. in the United States. Wow. Um, so it's it was a huge spot. 
It's named after this guy named William Wallace, who basically started to purchase land and, and pay for roads and a grocery store and, and uh, started uh, trading posts and things in there and, and started to persuade people to come and, and start mining. It would also become the center of many labor strikes in the uh-huh. future, including uh, when we get to Harry Orchard at some distant episode, <laughs> which will probably be three or four parts because yeah. his life is incredibly yeah. interesting. And... Wallace had another interesting thing. They had a lot of vices that were permitted, including gambling and prostitution. And brothels in Wallace were active from 1884 to 1991. Oh. You heard that right. Well. Yes, within our lifetimes. Well, not mine. Oh, I guess mine. Okay. (laughs) I'm a little bit older. Um, Yes, so they finally closed down uh, all these brothels in 1991. 91. Yeah. So in 1908, when Fred arrives there, Wallace is at like the height of its population, about 3,000 people. Currently, the the most recent census uh, estimate said that they have a population of about 759 people living in Wallace right now. So he's entering this bustling city full of miners who were, you know, seeking escapes. Mm-hmm. They are they are going to be attracted to this carnival. They are going to spend their earned money seeing these events uh-huh. and all these different things yeah. happening. He has a, a pretty good good time, uh, but he decides to get a job after he sets up all this arc lighting and things mm-hmm. at this uh, this place called the Arcade Saloon and Variety Theater, which he works until the spring of 1909, and uh, he loses that job because mm-hmm. the uh, the owner of it is actually arrested during this big crusade by local reverends, by preachers. They call <laughs> yes. it the Preacher's Crusade up in Wallace. And they were trying to arrest all these folks who had all these vice casinos and, okay. and other houses of ill so, repute okay. open. Okay, so he was arrested, though. So it was a theater? It, it was it was a theater, but they had all kinds of... They had gambling in there, and they also oh, served liquor. And okay. so the reverends actually... Basically, citizens arrested the owner because he was open on Sundays, and it was supposed to be arrest laws, oh. which is kind of interesting, yeah. So after he's released from jail, the owner actually just moves to Spokane. And okay. Fred is kind of destitute. Um, right. He he left the theater company. He left, left the circus. He uh-huh. left this arcade theater. Uh-huh. And... Uh, he gets a letter from a friend of his named Harry George, who claims that he purchased a ranch out of outside of Coeur d'Alene, which is just, you know, just a little mm-hmm. hop and skip away from Wallace. Yeah. And Harry George was going to open this ranch to raise chickens. And so he asked, you know, Fred, will you come and help me build all these, these sheds and barns and, and coops? And, you know, I'll pay you to come work for me. And so Fred is like, yeah, uh, maybe I will. To Fred's misfortune, and I say that with air quotes, because that's how he describes it, he runs into his old friend John Billings, the guy who introduced him to liquor when he first joined that circus company. John also skipped the circus after when he reached Wallace. And I kind of wonder if they had a little bit too much fun there. It's hard to say what happened. But uh, apparently, John was just loafing around, doing odd jobs wherever he could find them. And he would only work for long enough to make a few dollars and would then go on a spree. That's that's what Fred said. So as Fred was gearing up, he's packing his things, he's ready to go up to Harry's ranch to work for him. He writes a letter to a woman in Boy City, a friend of his named Mrs. Ward, stating that he was very poor and in really bad financial condition, but he was about to make a trip and make some money. This is important later on. 
Not long after that, he runs into John again, who asks what he's up to, and Fred tells him, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to this little chicken chicken farm in Coeur d'Alene you want to come with. Mm-hmm. Sorry, can I ask how yes. much older is John then? He's about 25 years older. Okay. Yeah, so John is like, he's he's probably close to 50 at this point, okay. and Fred is about 20 years old. Okay. So 25, 30 years, okay. yeah. They board a train, and... Uh, John only agrees to go with Fred to Coeur d'Alene if Fred pays for the, the train ticket from Wallace to Coeur d'Alene. So okay. Fred's like, okay, I'll do that. So they get out. They actually check into a hotel together. They get there late one night on December 3rd, 1909. They sleep in the same bed in this little uh, Coeur d'Alene inn for uh, uh, the night. And then the next day, they start looking around the town looking for Harry George. Unfortunately, nobody seems to know who Harry George is people are like, you know, I don't I don't know who this is. So John has been lugging around a, a bottle of whiskey this whole time that they've been going from house to house asking, do you know where Harry lives? Hey, do you know where Harry lives? Finally, John is like, you know, you're taking me on a wild goose chase and starts yelling at Fred. And oh. the two get into a fight on the outskirts of town. And uh, Fred had this really bad blister on his foot. So he was carrying around this mm. stick like a cane. Mm-hmm. When the insults kind of grew and grew, it turned into fists. But Fred is just like 5'5", five, five, I think. And this John guy was a lot bigger, a lot older, a lot stronger than him. And so Fred realizes that this is not going to work. And he picks up his, his cane and he hits John on the side of the head. Fred would say that he only struck John one time and that it knocked him out. And he was surprised to see John collapse on the ground and, and go unconscious. But uh, investigation would show that there were three wounds inflicted on, oh. on John's head, two hard enough to sufficiently cause death. That club was found near the body. Oh, so. would you drop it? I mean, I guess yeah. this is before, I mean, I'm thinking modern, like fingerprints and stuff. So I guess yeah. you wouldn't want to be found with it. Yeah. But- so while John's on the ground... Fred pilfers his body, steals his 11-jewel Waltham watch and his wallet, which contain about $40, $45 in it. He turned John's pockets inside out. So this becomes very clear then that this is not an accident. It's not yes. just, oh, I hit him when I was mad. Right. This becomes, I clearly wanted to kill him. Yeah, and then, so after he pilfers the body, he drags him 75 feet into this, into the mounted area and through the snow, because this is December 4th, 1909, oh. And he covers the body with some stumps and logs. But there's going to be blood. Right. Well, right? That's, or that's am I wrong? Think. Yeah. So Fred, he, he flees the scene, and he actually boards a train and goes to Spokane, Washington, where he pawns John's watch. Okay. Several town people in Coeur d'Alene, they notice this trail through the snow. And none of them investigate until this young schoolboy tells his classmates that they, he sees this this trail. A so trail of just like like it a, looks like an a body, indentation. Like something. Yeah. Okay. Something so because it's not necessarily blood. Middle. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so this little boy gets his friends after school to go follow this trail seventy five feet off the road, and they discover the body. No, kids, don't do that. The sheriff starts to investigate, and they figure out the identity. Uh, this is John Billings. He was last with Fred not Gruber. Yet. And uh, so Fred is the prime suspect of this. And soon after, the pawnbroker who who bought that watch says, hey, uh, this this guy sounds a lot like this guy who came to Spokane uh, that same day mm. and pawned this watch. And wouldn't you know, his name that he left was Fred Gruber. 
Why? Police are I, on the lookout for Fred. Exactly. I don't understand. Like, yeah. if you're going to commit a crime, fine. If you're going to punt a watch, fine. <laughs> oh, I mean, not fine. But well, I just like, don't be stupid about it. Right. Like, yes. Uh, I don't and, and this this would kind of come up. Uh, his trial was a little contentious, but uh, he's actually arrested in Lewiston committing another crime, selling liquor to Indians. So he was involved oh, in a bootlegging no. scheme. Exactly. And when this Coeur d'Alene sheriff finds out that there's a guy in Lewiston in for this crime, he says, you know, I need to speak to this man. He goes and finds out, yep, this is our Fred Gruber. He arrests him and trial begins. He's brought back to Coeur d'Alene. The county attorney, Mr. Potts, actually visits Fred in the jail and pleads with him to say that he was guilty of murder with intent to commit robbery, saying that if he didn't, he would charge the young man with murder in the first degree and he would most likely hang for the crime. So he's saying, you know, if you say you did it in order to rob this man, we'll get you on a lesser count, which I was, mm. yeah. Okay. Uh, it was discovered that Harry George, the supposed chicken farmer, didn't appear to exist but fred still has this letter that he most likely forged himself okay but yeah but why right well this i think because this was a whole idea was to rob john billings i think the whole idea was to take him out to Coeur d'Alene, oh. steal his belongings you know take him on this wild goose okay. chase kill him and, and rob him jeez Louise, right yeah oh boy but did because I mean, I don't know how much a train ticket was, but like, was the net worth, you know, worth that? Because he right. had, he had to pay for the train ticket, so he lost money yeah, a little yeah. bit. How much did he, he got? Forty bucks. Yeah, forty. For, it said forty to forty-five and then, dollars. And then which, the you know, watch. Nineteen oh eight. That's that's a couple that's, hundred. Yeah, yeah, that's not bad. Okay. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, okay, and I think that's his, a, his that's idea so elaborate. Was, right. I think he wanted to skip town and then start something new. But I don't. I don't think he really understood the gravity of the situation. Like right. he he didn't have a normal life. He right. was in a circus uh, train, you know, traveling from town to town, and probably not with the you know best and brightest right. and and people with the highest uh, moral compass mm -hmm. to like help him. So I think he was just just bouncing around from okay. from town to town and hoping he could just get away with it that's it just seems so like mm -hmm. there are a multitude <laughs> of ways to to get someone out of town in order to rob them right. and i just feel like writing a letter is uh, so much work mm -hmm. yeah but, absolutely i mean i guess it's creative <sighs> yeah <laughs> and so unfortunately he doesn't have money to pay for actual proper counsel so they I, I don't know if Harry George really existed at all. I mm. did not find him anywhere mm -hmm. in any records. Fred didn't have money to have somebody go locate Harry. Yeah. Okay. So he's got <laughs> that convenient. hanging above him. Exactly. So he actually pleads not guilty on January 27th, 1910. On February 26th, his lawyer appeals and said Fred was going through a bout of temporary insanity due to his childhood trauma which would continue to come up through the, this trial. The trial begins on March 9th, and on March 14th, Fred is found guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to hang May 20th, 1910. So just a few months away. He arrives at the prison on March 25th, 1910, and he is looking at an execution. And he was actually set to hang a double hanging with John Fleming, who I mentioned in 
the Patrick Murphy episode okay. um, because John Fleming actually took Patrick Murphy in when he arrived and uh, kind of led him through the prison yard and, and trained him. So John Fleming was in for murder in the first degree as well. They were supposed to hang together on May 20th, 1910. He appeals. He gets a new okay. execution date for August 25th, 1911. And a month before, Governor Hawley of Idaho appeals and pushes the date back to October 4th, 1911. Fred just continues to plead for a commutation to a life sentence in prison instead of execution. And letters pour in from all over the state calling for this. The judge that convicted him, the chairman of the Board of County of Commissioners in Kootenai County, the sheriff of Kootenai County, the coroner of Kootenai County, uh, one of the jurors, the undertaker, and even Fred's brother-in-law, Wright, calling for his commutation. So even the man who condemned him to hang is like, no, maybe we shouldn't execute this fella. Okay. Um, because the prosecuting attorney actually investigated his childhood trauma and realized... And found that, out it was horrible. Yes. He actually writes into the Board of Pardons and he says that, you know, Fred is guilty of the crime, but in view of all the circumstances of the case, the youth of the defendant, and especially his surroundings during his boyhood and early life, I earnestly recommend that the sentence of death be commuted to life imprisonment. It is a case where life imprisonment would be a more just and humane punishment. I feel he should not be held to the same degree of accountability for his acts that a boy should who had a fair chance to become a good citizen. On the morning of October 4th, 1911, he's supposed to hang that day. Right. The Idaho statesmen, they write, we don't know if he's going to hang today. They actually write, Fred Gruber may get reprieve, sentenced to hang for murder between 8 and 2 o'clock today. Hmm. Only favorable action of pardon board can save him from the gallows. That morning, oh, they were man. deciding his fate. Can you imagine no, the, that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have a hard enough time with uncertainty of like what I'm going to eat every day. <laughs> oh, and... I to wake up that morning and be like, is today the day that I die? Like, right. I just, I, that would be hurt. Like, that's yeah. almost inhumane. Right. And, and like, why do you know why it took them so long to make a decision? They, was it, it was purposeful? pretty, it was set. Yeah. So they had visitors and they said he was, he was, he was very visibly affected and nervous and his eyes were huh. badly bloodshot that's as if weird. sleep had deserted him. He's not given up hope, however. I don't I don't understand why he would have trouble sleeping. That doesn't doesn't track. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so finally the next morning, the Idaho Statesman posts that Gruber escapes gallows by a scratch. His sentence is commuted to life imprisonment by the Board of Pardons. Supreme Court is divided. Strong pressure brought to bear to save life of condemned man. Warden Snook stated that Fred would have collapsed if he had gone to the gallows, that it would have been necessary to carry Gruber to the gallows as he would not have been able to walk. Oh, I mean, whoa. that's uh, how traumatic yeah. it would have been. He was obviously very visibly shaken yeah. by this. That day on, he's looking at a life sentence okay. in prison, which I think he mostly made the best of. Mm -hmm. His intake form, term, January 1910, crime, murder in the first degree, sentence, death, and then later commuted to life. Right. Age 20, born in Galveston, Texas, occupation, electrician, height, five foot, six inches, complexion, fair, weight is unlisted, but he's, he's fairly thin, hair color brown, eye color brown, and it, and it even notes parents both died when he was seven years old, the same time he left home. He's raised Methodist, he's literate, he's a moderate drinker, and uh, he had spent 30 days in the Shoshone County Jail for taking a suit of clothes, he said, because the man he stole it from owed him money. Uh. 
Yeah, his nearest relative is <laughs> George Scotto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, George Scotto is his is his brother-in-law, is his his only and nearest living relative living in Texas City, Texas. So you none know, of his siblings were alive. I I couldn't find any evidence of them surviving. Huh. So I don't know what happened, or if if they if they were kind of MIA. I don't know what happened to them. Yeah, but is is brother-in-law writes basically about his childhood and how hard it was for him but unfortunately his sister had passed away so okay. it was his brother-in-law was a widow to his sister and uh you know he just called for sympathy for for fred sure. yeah his teeth condition were good he had one out in his lower left jaw which is <laughs> okay. you know not yeah, very not common yeah it's often not... often we get a lot of inmates who came in with bad teeth yeah yeah um, size <laughs> of boot and hat were number seven while in prison like most lifers, as you'd call them, uh, he was a model inmate. I mean, you're going to make it as, as easy as you can, and that's basically staying out of trouble as much as you can. So right. he's regarded as a hard worker, a rule follower, and uh, during his spare time, he starts learning to play music, and he studies the cornet, and he, he eventually becomes the leader of the institution band, oh, okay. which is kind of cool. And yeah. r right in this period, 1910 to 1920, the, the warden actually calls out for Boise citizens to donate yeah. instruments. So yeah. probably exactly. And is this the same time as Benjamin Penn? Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So we have some photos. I Actually, I should probably look at those photos and see if he's in he's them. He's in there. That'd be cool. That would be really interesting. Because there's the one down in the timeline. Yeah. Right? Here at the old pen. Yeah. Right? In, in the, the administration in the, yeah, building. building. Yeah. I'm going to have to check that out. I should have looked at that. I didn't even think about it. Good call, Finally, guy. I got you on something. <laughs> so he applies for a pardon on, in April of 1917. That's denied. He then applies again in October 1917, which is also denied. He writes to the Lord of the Lord, the the, the, the Board of Pardons, <laughs> and uh, asks for you know a, a, a release. And and uh, he's you know he talks about I'm I'm guilty. I totally understand. I did that. I took a man's life. I was but 19 years of age at the time and had been knocking around the world for some years in company with men in whom. There was little respect for law and society and only a regard for personal desire and impulse. So mm -hmm. kind of what we were talking mm -hmm. about where mm -hmm. he didn't really have a lot of good moral compass. Right. You know, like any examples. people to follow. Yeah. Good examples. Also, yeah. so I'm going to stop you because I have to get this joke out. Else I'm going to burst. Um, was the, the head guy of the board of corrections called the Lord of Corrections? Because he should have been. <laughs> oh. is, all I'm, is all I want to say there. I, I bet to Fred when he got his, <laughs> his sentence commuted to life. I bet he yeah. probably felt that yeah. way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he also talks about, you know, uh, he had been trying to make the best of his incarceration and learning music. And this is the, where I first learned about him playing. Okay. April 1918, he applies again for parole and is not let out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in November of 1918, a month mm -hmm. after he is denied his next parole date, you know, World War One's raging in Europe. The American Red Cross is calling for inmates to help with the war effort by offering different ways that, you know, they can contribute. Right. So they're donating yarn to inmates here and saying, hey, uh -huh. will you make socks uh -huh, and uh -huh. gloves and hats and sweaters and things for the soldiers? And, you know, being the, the model inmate that Fred yeah. was, he said, yeah, you know, sign me up. I, I will absolutely help. Unfortunately, he began stealing little chunks of this yarn, putting them in his pocket each uh -huh. each day. And after a period of time, he had enough to weave a 25-foot-long rope. And it was Whoa. one inch thick, 25 feet long. And, you know, the wall is 16 to 18 feet high. Uh -huh. So he was thinking, 
I just need a little extra. He found a hook that he put a sock around so、What? it would dampen the noise when he tossed it over the wall. Where did he get a hook? I don't、oh、know. I, I wish I could find that out. Yeah. And、Ugh. so、uh, he and a fellow cornet player named Harry Horace Hinton decided November 17th, 1918. That would be the day they would escape.、Oh. And both of them were waiters in the dining hall. And so、uh, there were 18 men who worked in the dining hall. They all woke up you know, about an hour and a half before all the other inmates woke、right. up. Probably because of Fred's background with electrical wiring, he figured out that the arc lighting that went around the prison site was all put on one、oh. switch. So if you、oh, just cut this one switch, It's going to go completely black in that、no、prison、way. yard. And so it's November, it's 6 a.m.、Yeah, Guards、yeah. have their backs turned as they're waking up the other inmates. Fred and Harry run to the wall, they cut that arc lighting, they toss this rope over the edge, climb up and out, and run towards the rail station. So the wiring was low enough that they could just reach up and. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, I kind of wonder because I know it was around 1918 that they, they really started to wire the cell houses up with, with lighting、uh -huh. and, and electricity. So I, I really feel like he was probably involved in that, that he was asked to contribute,、sense. which yeah. would, yeah. So he would know the ins and outs of this electrical、mm, system. Right. Yeah. So.、Huh. They, they、uh, hop on a train and they take off, and the bloodhounds follow their track right to this railway station area.、Okay. Yeah, so it'd be kind of between Myrtle and Front.、Um, oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And so they make it out.、Uh, Harry Horace Hinton, I love that. <laughs> That's、uh, a good name. He was in here for five to 15 years for a robbery sentence, and I don't, I've never been, I've never found where he was ever recaptured. I did find a Harry Horace Hinton. Who was buried in Indiana in 1925 and he died in an accident. So、mm -hmm. I think that he successfully escaped. He got out. Yeah, yeah,、wow. and was never recaptured, but yeah, died. So they at some point separated,、yes. probably went separate ways. Yeah, absolutely.、Okay. Because just under a year later, Fred is recaptured. October 19, Fred is living under the name Fred Carlisle, and he and a friend named George Schlagenhoff decide to steal an automobile in Los Angeles. And they are arrested in San Diego. And Fred actually takes the whole blame because he knows, you know, I'm going to go right back to Idaho and、mm. spend the rest of my sentence.、Right. His, his buddy gets let go. And、uh, luckily in 1912, the Idaho prison warden actually tried to help create the first fingerprint system with Levensworth, the federal、oh. penitentiary. And so by this time, you know, Fred's fingerprints are in that system. And、oh. so they, the、uh, San Diego authorities, send his fingerprints to Levensworth and ding, 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 here's your Fred Gruber.、Oh. Thomas Jolly, who's the, the prison yard captain, is sent. I love his name, Thomas Jolly. That's、yeah. the <laughs> best thing for a prison guard.、Yeah. He's sent down to San Diego and brings Fred back. Fred would spend the next Several years incarcerated, he would apply for parole April 1921. That's denied. October 1921, that's denied. April 22, denied. November 22, denied. July 23, denied. Finally, he is released at the expiration of his sentence on June 27th, 1925. And what happened to him after that? I don't know. I, I hope that he became a coronetist in some band and,、yeah. you know, the Roaring Twenties. He's probably playing in some jazz. Well, and, and jazz an electrician would be a prime job <laughs>、yes. at, in the 1920s. Absolutely, like,、yeah. you have all these new gadgets that need to be hooked up to electricity.、Uh -huh. 
uh, yeah, that'd be great, yeah. great time to have that job, to yeah. know how all that works and to have done it for so long. It's not like you're new in the trade. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, here's also a tip. If you're a fugitive on the run, don't commit another crime. Right. Yeah. Like no one in LA would have ever found him mm. unless he, but they did because he decided. So don't, just don't do that. If you, if you want to stay anonymous and not get caught, don't commit another crime. Yeah, just, go straight. Yeah. Whatever. Be an electrician in the 1920s. You'll make a lot of money. Right. No one will bother you. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's it for Fred and Gru. Nice yeah, job, Anthony. Yeah. yeah. There were so many rabbit holes. And I, you know, I love rabbit holes. But yep. when I'm up till midnight <laughs> searching some of these things, I'm like, man, I just got to stop. So <laughs> yeah. there's probably 10 more minutes worth of things I could have talked about. But I'm going to cut it right there. No, you're good. I'll let you go for it. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. Today, uh, I am talking about Hennaby. And Hennaby is our very first female inmate. And that's not something that we can say about the men as often because mm-hmm. we had, what was it, 11 men 11. that all came at one time. And yeah. so there isn't like a first. We have yeah. 11 firsts. I listed them in that You did. You did. Yeah. I do. As soon as I said that, I was like, Anthony, you talked about this. So I good did. thing I remembered it. So, but Hennaby is our very first female inmate. She comes in in 1887. Mm-hmm. All right. So my sources, I have... Uh, I must have used her inmate file at some point. I couldn't find my digital copy of it. but And if we have it, it's really only going to have two or three sheets in it since she was so early. Her number is uh, 169. Mm-hmm. So she was uh, very, very early in, in the history. There are some articles that I pulled from the Library of Congress, um, which is a great resource. There was one record of her on Ancestry.com, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. One, yeah. She is hard to find. I'm impressed. I know. (laughs) Uh, I I actually found it through another source, so it doesn't doesn't count as my find. (laughs) And then there are two articles from different editions of the Idaho State Historical Society's journal, historic journal. It's called um, Idaho Yesterdays, and it's been going on since the 60s. Are we still publishing it? No, no, we, no are we are not. Um, <laughs> they uh, so I think it went through like the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. So the first one is by Fred E. Woods, and it's called "The Idaho Territorial Penitentiary's First Female Inmate." Uh, his I use the most because it is specifically about Hennepin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in his, he actually cites another one. It's by Robert Waite. It's called "Necessary to Isolate the Female Prisoners, Women Convicts, and the Women's Ward at the Old Idaho Penitentiary." Mm-hmm. And um, so I use both of those. They're, they were really useful. And of course, being the history nerd that I am, I even cited them in Chicago style wow. <laughs> on my paper because I am, and I like didn't even have to look up how to do it. That's how often I had to do it <laughs> yeah. in my master's program. Oh, yeah. All right. So when Idaho became a territory in 1868, there wasn't really much of a need to think about a separate women's portion of a prison. 
mostly because frankly there were hardly any women out here you know women aren't they don't do a lot of mining uh, they if they they sometimes may have come with the husbands or with the fathers but mm-hmm. there's just women aren't coming out here on their own and obviously an even smaller number who participate in uh, serious crimes. So there were not any female inmates held in the territorial prisons in Idaho City or in Pierce. But this is according to Robert Waite in his article. He says, one of the most well-known female criminals in the 1880s um, in Idaho, her name was Stella Richards. And this is really interesting. So this is from the Blackfoot Reporter. This is just like the whole little article. It says, Tuesday evening, Stella Richards got on one of her periodical drunks and undertook to demolish a servant girl at the city restaurant who had made some remarks derogatory to her fair name. When Officer Davidson undertook to serve the warrant for her arrest, she laid open that dignitary scalp with a beer bottle. Stella now languishes in the Bastille. Okay, first of all, the language in this is hilarious. So she just gets drunk and goes out to beat up this girl who just blasphemed her, I guess. And then the officer comes to arrest <laughs> her and she just smashes him over the head with a beer bottle. Jeez. Like crazy. Kind of so, sounds like Calamity Jane kind yeah. of character. Wow. <laughs> so uh, Stella never spent any time uh, at the Idaho State Penitentiary. She did spend time in the Bannock County or Pocatello City Jail. It just mm-hmm. says the Bastille, and he uh, wait just specifies that it's the city jail, the local jail. So, mm-hmm. don't know if it's Bannock County or Pocatello or Blackfoot uh, City Jail, but she probably wherever it was, she probably spent time in that jail with Hennepin before Hennepin came to the penitentiary because this was actually around the same time. Okay. So Hennaby, again, our first female inmate, she also sometimes is referred to as Henneba, mm-hmm. uh, just depending on the records. So she comes into prison on May 31st, 1887. Now, what do we know about Hennaby? The answer is not very much. Not very much at all. She was a Shoshone Bannock Native American woman from the Fort Hall Reservation. She was born in 1860. Uh, the Fort Hall Reservation by 1887 was less than 20 years old. It, it was created the same year that Idaho became a territory through a treaty in 1868. And I talk a little bit about that, the the parceling off of Native Americans into reservations and uh, what a travesty really that was. So this will not be surprising to you. White people didn't really keep very good records of Native Americans. So this is really why we don't have very much on her in the resources that that I could find that I have access to. It would make sense, and I learned that Native Americans keep their own records, right. which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so at Fort Hall, they actually have their own census records and and things like that. And um, Woods, uh, Fred E. Woods, when he did his research, he actually went to the library at at the reservation and pulled those records. So any of the census information I talk about is mostly I have to give him credit for that research. What else do we know about Hennepin? Just that she was married, and she had been married at least once before she comes into the prison. And how do we know this, you might ask? Because she was in prison for manslaughter for killing her husband. Yes. The term that they use is, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, I think I'm putting a a 2019 spin on it, meme loosing, M-E-M-E, loosing. I've never come across that term. You haven't? That's interesting. Okay. Um. Yeah, and like I said, I, I could be saying it wrong because M-E-M-E is meme, yeah. but I don't know if it was pronounced the same back then. Did um, you, do you know the origin? No, so or? here's the thing. Um, <laughs> it's one that has just been forgotten by history, and I think okay. probably rightfully so. 
I only ever found it once, and it was in the November 4th, 1887 edition of the Idaho Semi-Weekly World newspaper, which was one that I found on the Library mm-hmm. of Congress. I'm not even sure how relevant it was even in the 19th century, because I would imagine if this was widely used, mm-hmm. every newspaper article would have used it. Uh, this was the only time I saw it, and a Google search doesn't yield any results about that. It actually, what it takes me to are like memes, like modern day memes. Right. So, uh, I don't I don't know what it is. <laughs> that term, though, that term meme loosing is the only detail we have about Hennepin's crime. We don't know how she did it or why she did it, if it was an accident, if she did it on purpose, because it is manslaughter. It's not murder. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the term meme loosing kind of makes it seem like she did it on purpose. I don't know. It's I wish we knew more about it, but we just don't don't know very much. So, again, she comes into the Idaho State Penitentiary on May 31st, 1887. Her sentence is three years. The main problem with Hennepin's three years for three for years for husband. manslaughter. Wow, yeah. Okay. So the main problem with Hennepin's incarceration is obviously that the prison doesn't have any separate women's facility because mm-hmm. they had never thought about it before. Right. So she was kept in the same cell house as the men, which we have seen with Josie before. We'll see a couple other times with some other uh, female inmates. What we'll talk about. And this, this would have been the territorial prison. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So this is in 1890s where Josie was kept. This is the territorial prison. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she's kept in a different cell, but she is kept with the men. Mm-hmm. And so, really, luckily, there weren't too many problems like there would be in a few years. Again, like we talk about with Josie, like we will talk about with Ida Laity, like we will talk about with Margaret Hardy. So this, but this does seem scandalous Mm -hmm. to a lot of people. So there is a private grand jury that is held to determine what should be done about the lack of the women's ward in the prison. The grand jury said that the lack was, quote, injurious, not only to the health of prisoners, but also to proper discipline. So I think it's interesting that it's injurious to the health of the prisoners. I think maybe they're meaning mental health, Mm. which is fair. I think that's probably true, especially if you get more than one woman in there. That's going to create a lot of mental health problems for both the men and the women, as we do find with (laughs) Josie. Again, we're going to be coming back to Josie a lot. Um, There's obviously a lot of parallels between these two ladies. So when Hennepin first enters the pen, most prison officials figured that she is not really going to be any kind of threat. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, you know, she's just going to serve her time and then get out of here. And a lot of prison officials actually told the warden that they think that she should be able to work in the warden's house rather than to right. work around the pen with all the men. As far as I can tell, that may have happened. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find anywhere that said she for sure did work in the house, but that was what everyone thought mm-hmm. should happen. So for about five months, she just sort of plays low in the prison, does whatever she's told, uh, maybe working in the house, maybe doing some less intense physical labor right. in, in the pen. Yeah. Then, in early November 1887, there's an article in the Idaho Semi-Weekly World that announces to Idahoans that Hennepin has escaped from the penitentiary. Oh. All right, so here's the exact article. It's a, it's a little bit long. But I'll, I'll do my best. So Hennepin, a squaw. Now, please note that is in the newspaper. That is not a term that I personally am using. This is in the newspaper. So Hennepin, a squaw who was sent to the penitentiary from Blackfoot for three years for meme loosing her husband, escaped one evening last week by shinning over the high board fence. She was the only lady convict and somewhat of a trustee. At the hour of locking in the cells, she was sent into the yard for her bucket and not returning as soon as expected. The turnkey went to see what had detained her. 
Hennaby was nowhere to be found. She had shaken the dust of the prison yard from her moccasins, climbed the fence as would a bear, and disappeared into the gloaming. So, uh, hate that. Warden Haley immediately instituted a hunt for her, and himself and several assistants were out all night scouring the country, but failed to find her. A reward of $50 is offered for her capture, or $25 for information that will lead to her apprehension. One sentence, the officers all said that she would not attempt to escape and recommended that Warden Haley let her do work about the house instead of being kept in the pen. And this is where it gets very lame. So it says, Hennaby, in abusing the confidence reposed in her, acted very unladylike. She was a holy terror at the sewing machine and not lazy. I don't know what that means. Like, not lazy seems like a good thing. The holy terror at the sewing machine, I feel, is um, an attack on her womanhood a little bit. It, it also, I think, and this is just my historical brain, thinking back to this Native American mm-hmm. class I had um, my last semester, that she was not adept at white culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the sewing machine is not, in 1887, is not going to be something that Native Americans are using regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they still are likely going to have their own cultural practices. Exactly. And this is white people trying to push white culture on her and basically making fun of her and the fact that she's not good at it. It's, right. it's nothing she's ever used before. Like, of course she's going to be quote, a holy terror. A like holy terror. you put me in front of a sewing machine. I will be a holy terror. I have no <laughs> idea how to use one. I, so I, I don't like that last sentence, but again, this also goes into how horrible newspapers were back then. I'm just not, I'm not a fan of early newspapers and, and so it was a different time, it a different was, place, it was. different ideas. So, uh, um, also climbed the fence as would a bear. That, Kind of made me chuckle a little yeah. bit. Just <laughs> why, why, why use that? Because uh... <laughs> a bear, I don't think would climb a fence very well. Just Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know top. anything about bears. Um, so yeah, so she just straight up notices no one's paying attention, climbs the fence, mm-hmm. just takes off, and, it's and just they can't this find her. Twelve foot wooden wooden yep. fence that surrounds the ground. So. Yeah. I, they had regular escapes over this. Fence. Yeah, just people scrambling up to the top. Mm-hmm. So, interesting. Yeah. I, so, yeah. I I just I love that. <laughs> it's crazy and amazing and good for her is yes. what I have to say about that. Again, fifty dollars offered for her capture, twenty five offered for any information that would lead to her capture. So Hennaby is not found for ten days. Mm. They finally find her back at the Fort Hall Reservation. Wow. Now, How for those of you, yeah, those of you who don't know, from Boise to the Pocatello area where the Fort Hall Reservation is, is 240 miles. 240 yeah. miles that she tracked in mm-hmm. less than 10 days. Right. So I did look on Google. Basically, it would take less than four days to walk. Wow. To walk. Just totally walk. There's another uh, Idaho Semi-Weekly World article that says she took cars to get back to the penitentiary but I would bet she probably walked most of that way. Because like I said, according to Google, it would take less than four days to walk there. And so even if she had walked the whole way, not taking train cars, um, she still would have had plenty of time to stay on the reservation and visit loved ones Mm -hmm. while she was there before she was found. She was returned to the penitentiary on November 14th, 1887 by, quote, two Indian police. So in other words, her own people brought her back. Whether or not it was her own people that found her, I'm not sure. But I would imagine there are very few white people roaming around the reservation. Yeah. And so um, I think there it, were reservation. There police. were Indian. Yeah, they, uh, what did they call them? Anyway, but there were white, uh, white people on the reservation.
observation, mm-hmm. but she's probably going to keep a pretty low profile, I would imagine, while yeah. she's on there, considering that she has escaped from the prison. Right. And so yeah. I don't think the the, the white office officials mm-hmm. are may have been the one who found her. We don't know. Again, mm-hmm. it just goes back to the lack of detail. All right. So, um, yeah, so she's brought back November 14th, 1887. Um, here's the reason that the newspaper gives for her escape. Again, uh, Hennaby, the escaped squaw convict, leaving here, took the cars and rode to Blackfoot and returned to the reservation. She arrived at the penitentiary on Monday in charge of two Indian policemen who bore a letter to Warden Haley stating the circumstances of her return there, etc. Hennaby told that she left the prison that she might visit her two children on the reservation. Public sympathy is with the poor, untutored woman, and the regret is general that she was found and returned. There is no doubt that the desire to see her children alone prompted her to leave. So what we see here, and I think what seems to be the case with many female inmates, is that kind of that motherly aspect Mm -hmm. coming through. Um, She escapes from prison simply because she missed her kids. And Mm -hmm. you have to wonder, you know, how many of us would do the same thing? You know, I I don't have kids. You don't have kids. But so I don't it's not Mm -hmm. it's not an an unreasonable reason to escape. She just wanted to see her kids. And it's also quite interesting that the public seems to be on her side about this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they say public sympathy is with the woman and the regret is general. Everyone seems to understand why she wanted to leave. And again, I can't say that I blame her one bit for wanting to to get out. So that's all we know of Hennaby uh, and her time in jail. She was pardoned and released on June 13th, 1888 after serving one year and 13 days. So she only wow. stays for about uh, seven more months after she escaped. Wow. And, and we don't have any, any ideas to, to why, like why she was pardoned. If mm-hmm. they just thought she had served enough time, if she, uh, you know, applied for, for a parole or a pardon, we don't yeah. really know. So what happens after her release is difficult to trace. And this is where Freddie Woods' article comes in. Again, most of this research he is going to do himself. Since his account comes from the records on the reservation, and this may be the only place that that information is found. Um, this is this is the one Ancestry.com record that I found. So in 1890, she had married a man named Perpetua Aratze. I think I'm, I don't know if I'm saying that right. A-R-A-T-S-E, mm-hmm. I would imagine. She's listed in the U.S. Indian census rolls as Hennebe Aretze. However, according to Woods's research, she would marry two more times, first to a man named Buffalo West and then to a man named Major Tommy. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So as we know, according to this newspaper article, she had at least two children. She may have had more. We don't know. She did have one son who died in 1903. And then the very last time that her name is listed on these Native American census rolls is in 1912 when she would have been about 52 years old. She likely died soon after and the director of the Fort Hall Shoshone Bannock Library, her name is Ardeth M. Peopi, she hypothesized that Hennebe might have died from tuberculosis, mm. which killed many Native Americans on the Fort Hall Reservation around that time. Yeah, and uh, and tuberculosis is a rough, rough disease. And mm. since she doesn't, you know, appear on the census rolls after that, it's a, I don't think it's illogical to think that that is likely what happened. Mm. So that's it for Hennebe. But Hennebe's time at the pen had a large effect on what came next. <laughs> it was clear to everyone that keeping men and women together uh, was a bad idea. <laughs> And so when the the next woman in Idaho was sentenced to time in prison, she was actually sent to the House of Corrections in Detroit, Michigan, which I don't know why Detroit. Uh, Maybe there weren't any others close enough because we know that around Josie, Idaho was the only one who didn't have a female ward. So Mm -hmm. I don't know why Detroit. I don't know if... 
the judge they were pretty lenient on her according to the the newspaper article that we have Mm -hmm. on her that that they said that her sentence seemed to be pretty lenient Mm -hmm. uh she was in for her name was annie campbell she received a two-year sentence for passing counterfeit coin and so yeah she was sent to detroit don't know why detroit why she wasn't sent to montana or Mm -hmm. utah or anywhere else nearby so that's kind of interesting But the potential cost of constantly transporting female prisoners to different facilities was incredibly high. So Warden John P. Campbell, who probably had no relation to Annie Campbell, decided to build, quote, a department for them at the earliest possible moment for some may be sent here at any time. So the result, uh, in order to get female inmates back at their own penitentiary, the result was a room on the second floor of one house or 1890s house kept completely separate from the men. Now, in Josie's episode, I did not make this clear because I did not know. Um, <laughs> it's not just a cell that they made up n- nicely. It yeah, is a, it's like a literal cells. separate room. Yeah. And Anthony showed me this this weekend. It is mm. the most precarious situation getting up and down. <laughs> but it is super neat. I'm yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's attached. It's a it's kind of at the end of the cell house. Mm-hmm. So if you're facing the dining hall, you're between the territorial prison mm-hmm. to your right and the 1890 cell house to your left, facing the dining hall. Those windows that you see up on the upper tier in the left, those are just separate rooms that are completely detached. Mm-hmm. You have to go up this stairwell, and mm-hmm. there uh, there's a door at the end of the stairwell. So they would have been completely segregated yeah. a, away from the male yeah. population. Which yeah. I again I didn't I just assumed it was just a cell that had right, that yeah. was separate. Yeah. Uh, but sh- it's not. Yeah, I'm glad that you got to experience like oh, go up there. It was it's, cool. It's fascinating. It was cool. Yeah, so they even had like their own little closet mm-hmm. and they had uh so they had one room that was their own room and then like a toilet and like yeah. bathroom facilities on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's pretty neat. So yeah. that really is because of Hennepi. Is she, you know, we didn't get another female inmate until 1895, mm-hmm. and that's Margaret Hardy, and she uh, is a, a whole different case that altogether. Will be an interesting episode, yes. for sure. Yes. Um, Margaret <laughs> Hardy was literally crazy. Yeah. So it'll be exciting to get into hers. But but really, that is all due to Hennepi, and, mm-hmm. and because she was kept in the same cell with the men. Uh, but that, you know, that's all we've got. Yeah. Her. Wow. Well, Thank you for attempting this Hennepi research because I've tried myself and mm-hmm. I got about half of what you found. So well, you're busy work. with other other things. <laughs> That's not. Nah, it's uh, a lot of these early inmates. There's just not mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, like about we them, don't so. even have a picture for her. Yeah, there are. Yeah. I think I counted five in five female inmates. I don't know about male inmates, but our mm-hmm. first. Five female inmates, not counting Josie. She has a picture. It's not necessarily a mugshot, but mm-hmm. we do have a picture of her. The, our first five don't have any mug, like yeah. their mugshots. So we just have to um, imagine. Now, according to her Bertillion chart, she was 27 years old when she came into mm-hmm. prison. She was 5'3". We don't know how much she weighed. Her complexion was copper, uh, which is basically uh mm-hmm. you know 1887 way of saying she is native american and not white yeah. um and then she had black hair and black eyes which is also very common for mm-hmm. all these native american inmates uh they eventually stop changing st- calling the eye color black they start to see brown but yeah. but it's almost guaranteed that if you have a native american their hair color will be black and their eye color will be brown yeah um and that's what we find in all of retilians so i wish we knew what she looked like yeah. um i would love to know what she would look what she looked like but um unfortunately we don't have that information but that is our very first female inmate wow yeah well, good work Sky. thank you <laughs> all right well 
I think we'll... Uh, Do you want to mention your sources, too? Because you yes. forgot to at the top. Yeah. So for Fred, I, I, of course, use the Idaho Daily Statesman archive, his file, of course, the Library of Congress Chronicling America collection. And that was, you know, looking at his family in Texas and Galveston, looking at all those newspapers, mm-hmm. looking at newspapers from all over where the carnival went. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, of course, Idaho and then California when he's, he escapes and is recaptured. And then I actually found this great source, the Pacific Reporter, which essentially is court files and appeals and it's just a chronicle of all like the most interesting cases and so he had like an eight-page spread documenting his case that really broke it down for me and you know when I compare it to the Idaho statesman how they were analyzing the case compared to how the judge and the the attorneys were looking at it like the Pacific reporter was the best source for it and it really helped put it in language that made sense to me yeah. and yeah, it was, cool. it was great. It wasn't journalistic. Uh-huh. It was like very precise. And it's yeah. like, okay, there we go. Now I know what I'm talking about. And it's not, you know, on Tuesday, the new statesman says this, but on Wednesday, it says the next right. thing. You know, it right. really broke it down, which That's is cool. check those out. If you're into court, <laughs> I, court records, <laughs> I love court records. And check out the Pacific Rope Order. You can find them, you know, every chronicle of those on Google Books and archives.com and uh, yeah awesome those are my sources nice job Anthony another episode down yes alright well Sky do your own time do your own number we'll see you next week if you enjoyed Behind Grey Walls please rate review and subscribe so others can find our podcast If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.